Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. Happy Hanukkah once again as we come as it comes to an end. Um, I had forgotten, so thanks for that. Oh, actually, um, y- yes. Uh, when I was passing the JCC this morning, I actually um, saw the menorah um, all lit up, so I, I should have remembered. Um, uh, happy holidays. Thank you. So last week was the uh, oral argument in the case of uh, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization at the Supreme Court, and uh, we had done two sessions in advance of that to help uh, our audience prepare so they could listen or digest the media coverage and so forth. And uh, now it's taken place, and uh, the media coverage exploded as uh, as we expected. Um, I had the opportunity to listen to it, as our audience may have as well. And uh, as promised, we're doing a sort of a post-mortem on it today. One thing that I, that I was struck by was I listened to the argument, and then afterwards, in reading the media coverage, uh, they had a different take on it than I did, and probably because I'm an inexperienced listener when it comes to these things. Um, they seem to treat the oral argument as a, like an episode of Jeopardy, where the questions were actually answers. Um, so, uh, it, Isn't it true that? Yes, correct. Um, but that isn't really the way the questions were phrased. I mean, to, I saw the questions being phrased as the justices presenting the case or some sub, subset of the case of the, to, an, to an advocate, presenting the opposition's case to the advocate and saying, what do you say about this? Whereas the media coverage uh, seemed to interpret it as the justices expressing their own opinion by virtue of these questions. So... How do how do you listen to these things? I mean, who's right, or you know, is it a, a matter of context? Or it will vary from justice to justice. Some justices hold themselves intellectually open as a practical matter longer than others do, and it will vary from issue to issue. First of all, the parties ask the court to hear the case. They petition for certiorari, and then when certiorari is granted, they write briefs, and then there's an oral argument, and then. Uh, the week of the oral argument, typically um, on a Friday of, of, of uh, that week, there's a conference in which the justices take preliminary votes, and there's actually then shortly thereafter uh, a, a tentative assignment of opinions that the uh, that is um, issued. Um, there are justices; they're assigned, let's say, to to write for the majority, and in the course of writing the majority opinion. They might change their mind. Um, this is a phenomenon that ju- judges among themselves um, refer to as an opinion that, quote, wouldn't write. Um, they see um, an issue that um, when they're trying to actually work their way through um, uh, the logic of their reasoning, A, B, C, D, oh, it turns out that E is much more complicated. They, they reach a certain fork in the road, and it actually is not just a fork, but a huge um, stumbling block for them. They actually change their mind because when they're actually trying to elaborate the chain of, of arguments, um, they see an insuperable objection and they change their mind. So some justices uh, stay open long into the process, um, even on an important case. 
Um, other justices, they make their minds up pretty early on. Maybe they made their minds up years ago because this is the fourth time a particular issue has come before the court and they're disinclined to, to think differently now than they, they thought before. Famous cases in which justices have changed their mind in the course of um, the actual opinion writing include, it is said, um, Justice Kennedy in the post-Roe the um, abortion case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 1992, which we might talk about. Kennedy initially was going to um, uh, um, basically um, move away from um, uh, Roe versus Wade, and he ended up reaffirming in in large part Roe versus Wade in the process of actually the opinion writing itself. He, he, he switched his vote. Very famously, it is said, I don't have inside information on any of these things, but it is said the Chief Justice Roberts changed his mind in the course of trying to write the, Ob- the first Obamacare opinion in a case called Sibelius. Um, very famously, um, one of my uh, heroes, John, uh, the, the younger um, Justice Harlan, grandson of the, the, the famous dissenter in Plessy versus Ferguson, the younger Justice Harlan, in um, a famous case um, uh, involving um, uh, crude speech, um, uh, F the draft, um, except it wasn't F, a, a T-shirt worn um, in open court. Um, he actually ended up writing, I believe, the majority opinion, but he switched his mind in, in, in the course of, of deliberation. So some justices change their mind late in the process. Others lock in um, early. Um, some justices use oral argument um, simply to make debating points to other justices. This is the first chance, really, that the justices have, oral argument is, to talk to each other. They're nine separate law firms. They each, each of them processed um, the, the petition for certiorari or read the briefs. But now, for the first time, they're all together talking about the case on the merits rather than the question of whether they're going to hear the case. There were earlier conferences about whether they were going to hear the case, but now on the merits, the first time that they have to talk to each other is the oral arguments. And sometimes they use questions that are putatively addressed to um, uh, the party's lawyer as a way of making a point to a fellow justice. So that's how some justices use oral argument some of the time, but sometimes they actually they, um, uh, some justices genuinely want to give a litigant one last chance to, to address what the justice thinks is the hard argument on the other side. A justice might be signaling, hey, I'm actually leaning this way, but I want to give you a chance, and here's why, and I want to give you a chance to tell me what I'm missing. Um, sometimes, actually, though, the justice might not be doing that, but, um, but just making sure that they tee up regardless of what their own view is, the strong argument um, against each litigant to, to give that litigant a chance. So, so some justices are um, signaling a little bit more what they really believe. Others are um, more like the Socratic law professor who, and this is a, a phrase that you hear in law schools, hides the ball, doesn't tell you what she or he really thinks, but just tries to ask hard questions on both sides. And that will vary from issue to issue and from justice to justice. So, so you, you're right, actually, you're right. Be cautious about reading too much into oral argument in general. That said, this is a really big case, a once-in-a-generation case on a really big issue, and the justices were surely aware that there was going to be more than the usual media scrutiny about what 
uh, they were saying in oral arguments. So I, I think um, they were more aware that um, people would be trying to read the tea leaves of oral argument in this case than in, say, um, um, a, a, a much um, l- uh, less high-profile case. And certainly the media coverage, to the extent that it did read tea leaves, which was a great extent, uh, I believe, came out of it saying that they believe that there are not the votes to sustain Roe and or Casey, or in other words, that the Mississippi laws was likely to be upheld rather than overturned. Um, So in preparation for the argument, we said um, that you should look for several things that the case was, in terms of argument, was likely to be about, um, at first, questions of uh, precedent. Yes. Or, or stare decisis, as they said in the uh, frequently in the uh, argument. Um, and indeed... Yeah, just, it, just like doctors, lawyers try to generate a whole bunch of jargon so that the people will defer to them. Okay. Right, right. So, so let's see how smart we are. Right, exactly. Yeah, and, 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 and Latin's very good for that purpose because uh, it's a dead language. No one sort of speaks it um, in, in, uh, um, in conversationally. Mm-hmm. And indeed, um, I think that that's, there certainly was a lot of discussion of that, and I think we, sh- we should review some of it. Um, just to remind the audience, um, in our prior episodes, we presented really two theories of precedent. There was um, a, a theory that was ad- adhered to by Justice Kagan um, and, and others, um, and then um, a theory that uh, Professor Amar has, which was uh, perhaps a more, uh, in some ways, nuanced theory, but certainly more detailed theory. So, yeah, and I describe mine as basically a somewhat fundamentalist, placing primary emphasis on getting the thing right, meaning uh, the Constitution itself, its text, its history and structure. Um, fundamentalist in the same way that Martin Luther was a fundamentalist um, uh, on religion, emphasizing Scripture, sola scriptura, Scripture only, or Scripture primarily, um, uh, 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 um, first and foremost. Um, and I contrasted that fundamentalist approach, which um, has characterized um, famous liberals on the court, like Hugo Black, uh, Franklin Roosevelt's uh, first pointy to the bench, um, and the driving the force, the crusading force behind the Warren Court. So Hugo Black on the left was a kind of left-wing fundamentalist. I am left of center, and, and I emphasize text history and structure, a very prominent law professor, now deceased, um, but maybe the preeminent scholar um, in the um, 1980s when I was going to law school, um, 70s, 80s, John Hart Ely, liberal um, person who emphasized the text, history, and structure of the Constitution. And on the other side, the folks who emphasize precedent more, I called them precedent worshipers, led intellectually today by Elena Kagan. Um, we also talked about how um, John Roberts um, uh, uh, has Kagan-like tendencies at some point. So this continuing between continuum between the precedent worshipers on the one side, again, I don't mean to denigrate them, but just to, to give you a, a kind of um, a quick shorthand, the precedent worshipers um, versus the fundamentalists. And each of these camps has had in American constitutional history, um, liberal proponents and conservative proponents. This cuts across the liberal conservative divide. I um, identify as a liberal um, text history and structure person, a liberal fundamentalist. 
But also, I think it's important to note that if you didn't hear the previous episode, that as we went through your uh, your theory, it you did not completely ignore precedent. You, no, you I, gave I precedent have, I have a, I have a place ways. for it, um, yes. but it, it's it's not um, actually the alpha and omega as it tends to be for certain precedent worshippers. And I think that the we'll see that in the argument some of the nuances of Professor Mars theory did mm-hmm. um, come to light. So I think and, it's important. And, and, I, and I hope you were um, impressed that I was able to bring in actually Greek along with Latin here in, 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 in deference to Omicron and Delta and all that. I got Alpha and Omega in. Yeah, I mean, I've had quite enough Greek these days with, uh, <laughs> with, with these various uh, variants. Thank you very much. But yes. Um, okay. So um, we're going to uh, actually quote from the oral argument. We're going to actually play you uh, selections from the oral argument, and, and then we'll discuss them. So, um, But first, to lead it off, um, early on in the argument, Justice Breyer made, uh, had a little soliloquy where he discussed the notion of uh, stare decisis and its role in this case. So here's Justice Breyer. Uh, I'd, I'd like to go to a different topic, back to Casey. Yes, I assume you've read Casey pretty thoroughly. Yes, Your Honor. And uh, uh, there are two parts. Uh, one is a reaffirm row. Put that to the side. The second is an opinion for the court, not for three people, but for the court. And that second part is about what stare decisis principles should be used to overrule a case like Roe. And they say Roe's special. What's special about it? They say it's rare. They call it a watershed. Why? Because the country is divided, because feelings run high, and yet the country, for better or for worse, decided to resolve their differences by this court laying down a constitutional principle, in this case, women's choice. That's what makes it rare. That's not what I'm asking you about. I want your reaction to what they said follows from that. What the court said follows from that is that it should be more unwilling to overrule a prior case. Far more unwilling we should be, whether that case is right or wrong than the ordinary case. And why? Well, they have a lot of words there, but I'll give you about 10 or 20. There will be inevitable efforts to overturn it. Of course there will. Feelings run high. And it is particularly important to show what we do in overturning a case is grounded in principle and not social pressure, not political pressure, Only, quote, the most convincing justification can show that a later decision overruling, if that's what we did, was anything but a surrender to political pressures or new members. And that is an unjustified repudiation of principles on which the court stakes its authority. And then there are two sentences I'd like to read, because they say they really mean this, the, the court, not just three. To overrule under fire in the absence of the most compelling reason to re-examine a watershed decision would subvert the court's legitimacy 
beyond any serious question. And the last sentence, after they quote uh, Potter Stewart on the same point, they say overruling unnecessarily and under pressure would lead to condemnation, the court's loss of confidence in the judiciary, the ability of the court to exercise the judicial power and to function as the Supreme Court of a nation dedicated to the rule of law. Now, that's the opinion of the court. All right? And it's about stare decisis and how we approach it. And I hope everybody reads this. It's at 505 U.S. 854 to 869. So there's a lot there to go through. Um, Justice Breyer is uh, known for um, uh, long questions slash uh, comments from the bench. Um, Let's just try to identify several aspects of what he said. First, he made a point, it's a technical point, but an important one, that the Casey decision actually, the the relevant passages, had five votes for it. Um, Because actually, um, different parts of Casey um, uh, actually had different um, uh, numbers of justices um, uh, endorsing um, um, this section or that one. But... um, the, the passages he was reading, he said, were opinions of the court that were not merely plurality opinions of the court, but majority opinions of the court, meaning that he's reading language that five, at least five justices explicitly agreed to. And that actually is in precedent land, um, more important, stronger, when uh, you have five justices for the same result and the same reasons, and they all actually agree at this certain formulation. Um, so that was uh, technically important. He says, this is five justices. Now, let me take a step back. From the point of view of um, constitutionalism in the broadest sense, which is what our previous two podcasts were all about, with all due respect, Justice Breyer, I, I love you, I clerk for you, but you just totally begged the question in an utterly circular way. The question is how much precedent counts, and you are saying it counts a lot merely appealing to precedent itself. Um, But someone else would say, with all due respect, Justice Breyer, damn it, you took an oath of office to the Constitution. Read your oath of office. Read the Constitution. See, and this is the fundamentalist. See, and you could say, well, they're begging the question, too. They start with the text. The text says the text is the most important thing, the Constitution itself and not the precedents. Okay, so now it might seem as if we've uh, got ourselves into two tight little um, uh, uh, self-fulfilling uh, um, uh, um, uh, circles. Cir- um, uh, so the text people say, the text trumps, look at the text. And Breyer's saying, oh no, precedent trumps, look at the precedent, look at Casey. Enter Akhil Amar, who says, actually, Casey said that. It said a whole bunch of things, but what it said was utterly unprecedented. Um, it's celebration of precedent, saying you follow precedents even you know, when, when they're wrong, and especially when people don't like them. The court had never said that before. That's actually not what the court's precedents say and do. This one precedent did, maybe, and I'm going to come back to maybe the uniqueness of Casey, but a whole bunch of other precedents Landmark precedents have said what the text of the Constitution says, which is the text of the Constitution trumps a precedent, um, just as it trumps 
a statute if the precedent is inconsistent with the text of the Constitution, um, or a statute is inconsistent with the text of the Constitution. So, so one thing, he's trying to do at least three things in that long statement. One, remind people Casey actually had five votes behind it. True. Remind people that Casey itself celebrated, you know, placed particular emphasis on precedent. It did, but in so doing, it itself was not only inconsistent with the text, which is one problem, but unprecedented, which is a problem for precedent worshipers, you see. And the third thing that he did was just try to say, in particular, justices should be especially hesitant to admit that they've made, that the court has made a mistake when a lot of people think the court has made a mistake. You know, digging in your heels just because so many people think the court has made a mistake. And I have always been harshly critical of that aspect of Casey. Um, in one opinion, uh, one excuse me, um, essay that I wrote, um, here's um, what I say about that. I, I refer uh, mockingly to the current court's extraordinary confidence in itself and its own precedents. The great and powerful Oz has spoken. And here's what I think with due respect, Justice Breyer has completely missed. And it's the same problem in a way that um, relates to an earlier episode um, that we, we had on this podcast, Andy, where you, you, you beat me up, <laughs> but good, about whether Justice Breyer should step down. Um, and, and he's particularly loath to step down when people say he should step down. Okay. So he digs in his heels on that. And, 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 and I tried to defend him to some extent, uh, and, and, and boy, you beat me up. Um, and here he's saying, we should hesitate to admit we made a mistake. We should hesitate to change course when a lot of people think we made a mistake and a lot of people of goodwill are urging us to, to change course. So, um, uh, here's why I think that gets it basically wrong. The Constitution came from we, the people. Um, and the justices are supposed to enforce, actually, the Constitution. Everything they do is in the name of the Constitution, you see. Um, so um, if, if um, something is in the text of the Constitution, oh, you do enforce it. And if even if it's become un unpopular, you still enforce it until the Constitution is amended, don't you see? So I get that. But um, Roe, the claim is... The claim is it's not in the Constitution. Um, the judges just made it up, and they were mistaken in making it up. Um, I believe that um, it's permissible for justices to recognize unenumerated rights, but one of the bases for recognizing unenumerated rights is the American people um, have actually really embraced a right. Um, and But if instead... Actually, the American people have, have, have rejected something, and it's not in the Constitution. The fact that they've rejected this, that is unpopular, is a relevant fact to think about, to, to, to take into consideration. Just as I believe it's permissible for a justice, it's not required, but it's permissible for a justice to take into account popular will um, in thinking about when to step down. It's a, not a bug, but a feature of the Constitution that presidents pick justices, presidents and senators, and voters pick presidents um, and senators. So, to repeat, so um, um, the Constitution gives you life tenure, but it's not a life sentence. And many justices in the past have chosen to step down 
when there's a president of um, their general point of view and a Senate of, of their point of view. So the Constitution's text permits you to step down early. And the, the precedence so, and the structure of the Constitution is one in which there is a kind of political input um, in the judicial replenishment process. It's not justices picking their own replacements quite, but presidents and senators picking new justices and people pick presidents and senators. And indeed, the, the precedents themselves about resignation um, are, uh, have permitted um, justices to step down when they think the political timing is right. Many justices have done that. Many justices that you admire, um, Justice Breyer, like David Souter. I think David Souter... Um, thought Bush versus Gore was wrong, um, so didn't want to step down on George W. Bush's watch and waited until George W. Bush was out of office and stepped down when there was a, a, a president who was um, a little bit more like-minded, um, uh, namely Barack Obama. Yes, Souter had begun as a as a Republican, but he had kind of drifted over to um, being a kind of, a, in effect, a moderate Democrat. Um, and he chose the timing of his resignation. He didn't make a big deal about it. He didn't broadcast it. He's a very class, classy person. Um, but if, if that factored in at all, um, that, that um, now is a good time politically to retire, um, and, and uh, Justice Breyer, you, you can still factor that in. You, you could factor that in. So I don't agree with Justice Breyer's idea that, um, that popularity or unpopularity is never a relevant factor. Sometimes it is. It depends what kind of issue. Judicial regulation, yes, could be. Um, unenumerated rights, yes, it could be. And finally, if you believe, if you're a small D Democrat, as am I, I'm a capital D Democrat also, um, um, you think there sometimes can be wisdom of crowds. Uh, this is a famous idea. Cass Sunstein has written a book about, he's written a book about just about everything, but, but, but he has written a, a book about the wisdom of crowds. And I mentioned Cass because, of course, um, um, uh, your son Matthew worked with Cass very closely when he was a student at Harvard Law School. The wisdom of crowds is in part the idea that men, if a lot of people believe something, maybe there's something there. Um, the Constitution is premised on that. It comes from we, the people. The idea is a lot of people, um, when you add them all together, have a certain collective wisdom. That's why one reason why we pay particular attention to the Constitution itself, because it comes from uh, uh, many, many people at, at important moments in history. Um, but there might also be a wisdom of Christ if a lot of thoughtful people really think that Roe versus Wade is um, all made up and an embarrassment you might want to listen to them rather than digging in your heels. Um, you have to, and, the, and, and if you think they're wrong, fine, make that argument on the merits. The people are wrong. Roe is right. Don't say, I'm not even going to listen to you precisely because you, there, there's so many of you and you're actually trying to, to trying to tell me that, that the court made a mistake. So, so I disagree with that um, um, uh, idea of Justice Breyer's. He's not making it up. It's in Casey, and it's one of the things that I've always criticized Casey for, even though personally I'm pro-choice. But I've written several articles in which I basically said um, Casey is an imperial judiciary that doesn't want to hear any criticism, and that's bad. Before we leave this um, this matter uh, of stare decisis um, as a sort of absolute uh, dictate here, um, I think there's two aspects to it. One is what, what you just detailed, and, and Breyer's 
Justice Breyer's notion that this is what we're supposed to do in this circumstance. But then there's also a, uh, in a sense, a more political argument, and that argument was then picked up by Justice Sotomayor, and this got a lot of play um, in the media afterwards. Um, And this goes to the question of the legitimacy of the court. Um, uh, And so let me play you this uh, quote from Justice Sotomayor. What hasn't been at issue in the last 30 years is the line that Casey drew of viability. There has been some difference of opinion with respect to undue burden, but the right of a woman to choose the right to control her own body has been clearly set for uh, since Casey and never challenged. You want us to reject that line of viability and adopt something different. Fifteen justices over um, 50 years have, or I should say 30 since Casey, have reaffirmed that basic viability line. Four have said no, two of them members of this court, but 15 justices have said yes of varying political backgrounds. Now, um, the sponsors of this bill, the House bill in Mississippi, said we're doing it because we have new justices. The newest ban that Mississippi has put in place, the six-week ban, the Senate sponsor said, we're doing it because we have new justices on the Supreme Court. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? I I don't see how it is possible. It's what Casey talked about when it talked about watershed decisions. Some of them, Brown versus Board of Education it mentioned, and this one have such an entrenched set of expectations in our society that this is what the court decided, this is what we will follow. That, the, that we won't be able to survive if people believe that everything, including New York versus Sullivan, um, I could name any other set of rights, including the Second Amendment, by the way. There are many political people who believe the court erred in um, seeing this as a personal right as, the, as opposed to a militia right. If people actually believe that it's all political, how will we survive? How will the court survive? Right. So with all due respect, Justice Sotomayor, it is possible, and you need to read some history, with all due respect, um, outside the court and not just actually what the justices said. I know you're a justice and I'm not. Okay. Abraham Lincoln thought that Dred Scott was completely made up, and it was. Dred Scott was an embarrassment And it was actually based on substantive due process. It said blacks couldn't be citizens, just like Roe was based on substantive due process and says, feed, I can't be persons. So, and Abraham Lincoln, when he was president, put people on the court 
who he was hoping would overrule Dred Scott. And there was nothing wrong with that. That's not a bug. That's a feature. Dred Scott was baloney. Uh, Abraham Lincoln called it baloney. He called it, quote, an astonisher in legal history. He called bullshit on the court. And there's nothing wrong with repudiating a decision that's made up. That's not illegitimate because your ultimate oath, with all due respect, Justice Sotomayor, is to the Constitution. If Roe is right, defend it on the merits. Say it's right and explain to me why it's right and where it really is in the Constitution, and then I'll cut you a lot of slack. But but just saying, row, 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 your boat, um, just that we said it and we said it again and we said it again, and so therefore that that makes it right. No, it doesn't. Um, you say stench because there are new justices. That's not a bug. That's a feature that there are allowed to be new justices, that there are elections um, and judicial replenishment. Andy, you know that I have a more regularized plan for a judicial replenishment every 18 years. But that's that's there's nothing. There's no stench involved where when the, the people they're allowed to have views on the Constitution, too, you know, and in the long run, they're allowed to amend the Constitution. You, you see, the Constitution came from them. It's amendable by them. And if you justices only persuade yourselves in your little epistemic bubble that this is actually an impressive opinion it, and it's not. Roe is not an impressive opinion. I've never thought so since the very first time I read it as a law student. My brother clerked for Harry Blackman. I, he quite loved Harry Blackman, but it's not a well-crafted opinion. It just isn't in my expert view. And, and with all due respect, Justice Sotomayor, I do constitutional law every day. Um, I, Andy hates it when I say that, but, but she's appealing to her expertise, Andy, see, as a justice, and I'm appealing to my expertise to counter. You know, she's on the Supreme Court and, you know, I'm a schlub. Okay. So I'm saying, I'm a schlub, but oh, I study the Constitution every day and I study history. And it's not a stench when the court actually has corrected its errors as it did when we, the people, repudiated Dred Scott in an amendment whose first sentence says everyone's a citizen. Dred Scott, everyone born in America is a citizen. Dred Scott says blacks can't be citizens. And we, the people said, oh, yes, they can. Okay, that's a constitutional amendment. Of course, the people are allowed to do that. There's nothing stenchy about that. Um, But even before that, Justice Sotomayor, Abraham Lincoln's attorney general um, issued a passport to a black who asked for one because... Um, the Attorney General, Bates, thought that Dred Scott was wrong, that blacks could be citizens, and he was going to issue um, a, a passport. And that's just simply because Lincoln won the election. Um, there's nothing stenchy about that. That's not a bug. It's a feature to repeat that um, we have elections um, of presidents and senators, and they in turn pick justices. Um, and, and, and those justices may have a different view because the people have a different view and, and those different views are expressed in elections. Abraham Lincoln ran against Dred Scott every bit as much as Trump and, and Ronald Reagan, for that matter, and every Republican in between ran against Roe. That's not a bug. It's a feature. It's not stenchy. And you say, oh, well, there, 
this is now yet another, it's a fourth formulation. I didn't quite have it before. My, I had three formulations of court worshipers that um, it has to be, you know, there has to be some special justification. It has to be wronger the day it was decided or if precedent means anything. This is a fourth formulation. I actually should have talked about it last time that um, it can never be proper to overrule a case merely because there's new court personnel. I don't think that at all. Um, if an existing justice changes his or her mind, that's okay. Um, why is it somehow not okay if that one justice leaves and another justice comes on and that new justice has a different point of view? And just to remind you, for example, Gabitis said that people could be put in prison or, or could be punished um, for refusing to um, salute the flag, these school kids, uh, 1941. Uh, they, um, uh, the Supreme Court said um, uh, the, the the government can actually punish students for refusing to salute the American flag. And there was actually pushback against that. Some people uh, were outraged in, in the community, civil libertarians and others. Some justices changed their mind, maybe because of that, because unlike Justice Breyer, they're actually listening to other people thinking, you know, is it possible I made a mistake here? Um, and there were new justices and Barnett, West Virginia versus Barnett, Two years later, overruled Gabitis. And Justice Sotomayor, West Virginia versus Barnett, is one of the, the landmark cases. It's one of the great cases in the 20th century. It's up there with Brown versus Board of Education, which, by the way, repudiated Plessy, and there was nothing stench. It didn't formally overrule it, but it distanced itself from it. There was nothing stenchy about that. Um, and that was the product in part of elections where we have new justices representing a different um, vision, one that was more open to black equality um, and nothing stenchy about listening to people who are criticizing Plessy, saying Plessy was wrong. And, and, and Justice Breyer, nothing wrong um, with um, opening your ears to the possibility that the court got it wrong earlier, as I believe it got it wrong in Plessy and it got it wrong in Dred Scott. Um, so if you think that Roe was right, great. Let's have a debate on the merits of that. Show me where in the Constitution it comes from or what in that opinion is actually a good argument. Defend the argument. Don't just hide behind the skirts of precedent and 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 words that really you know, that pack a lot of punch, but, but don't actually have any proper analytic content, words like stench. And I think that, you know, we're going to get to some of the things that you, some of the points that you just made about let's, about having an actual discussion about the rightness or wrongness of, of Roe and Casey. Um, and actually just, you know, to, as a sort of a preview of that, you know, Justice Thomas, um, repeatedly, actually five times during the argument, um, asked, where is the right to an abortion in the Constitution? Again, this, you know, one could say, well, he was making an argument saying it's not in the Constitution. But that isn't actually what he said. He said, where is it? He asked, he asked the question. Um, and, on and, and, and if I'm a litigant on the other side, I'm grateful for the opportunity to actually, that's, you know, if you've got a good argument, Oh, that's an 85 mile fastball right over, you know, at the center of the plate. That's the pitch I've been waiting for. You know, uh, that, that is, it's straight. It's got no, no spin to it. It's just 
a, a, a big meatball that I want to hit out of the park. If I've, you know, cause it's not as if this is a question, you know, out of nowhere, lots of people have asked this question over many, many years. It's one that if you believe in the, um, the row, right, you should have a good answer to. And I think that actually, um, the uh, attorney Rickleman actually did have uh, a re- an interesting argument, which we'll get to. Yes. Um, but before but, but we that, get there. But the argument was then on the merits, not just saying, but because 20 justices have repeated this and only seven have, have attacked. And by the way, one other thing about Justice Sotomayor, it's true that more justices have voted to reaffirm Roe than have criticized Roe, but the justices who have criticized Roe have criticized Roe in very sharp terms, um, um, of the sort that you don't usually see um, in U.S. reports. So the the intensity of the opponents of Roe, um, both outside the court and on the court, is something to take seriously, especially if we have to be kind of one country, even if it's, let's say it's six to three. Um, so it's not even five, four, it's six to three. But the three don't say you're wrong. The three says you're wronger than than almost anyone has ever been on the court. Take now, if they always say that, if they're, then they're just fetches. They're they're cranky. But if they say that here and not elsewhere, take that seriously. So, Justice Sotomayor, because you you asked about this, you said I don't see how the court recovers. And I say, well, then actually, with all due respect, like read more because read the history um of this i know that's that's very very provocative what i just said i say it with love and respect you know that i you know we're friends and i I love you and and i clerk for steve Breyer, but i have to i'm your i'm your your tough love friend i'm actually going to take seriously what you said um and tell you why actually that's not the 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 good argument Um, plessy versus ferguson Roe was 7-2. Plessy versus Ferguson was 8-1. to one. Um, And it was reaffirmed many times before it was finally repudiated by Brown versus Board of Education. Um, and a person on the court who actually plays the Brown card actually looks a little bit like you, Sam Alito. You both went to Princeton um, undergrad and then Yale Law School. So we, we may come back to the, the Brown-Plessy issue, which we talked about, you remember, in our last episode as being, you know, particularly important. But but. Roe was 7-2. Okay, but Plessy was 8-1. to one. But that one dissenter, John Marshall Harlan, the, the elder, said that this, this case, he, he said, was another Dred Scott. He really ratcheted up um, um, the, the decibel level of, of his dissent. He, he, he said, this is as wrong as it's possible to be Oh, and history has vindicated him, you see. We now think so. Why? Because the Constitution really, and and here's the simple argument, really does say equal, and segregation really wasn't equal. You see? See how easy it is to actually make an argument based on the Constitution? It says equal, segregation isn't equal, Plessy's baloney. Um, um, On Dred Scott, Dred Scott said blacks can't be citizens, it doesn't say that in the Constitution. You're making that up. Now, that's just the critique that people are making of Roe. It doesn't say abortion in the Constitution. You're, you're, you're making it up. A counter might be, oh, it does say some things. It says women's equality or something. Roe doesn't talk about that. But, but th- what we need to hear from Breyer, 
from Sotomayor and from the oral advocates on that side is not just precedent, 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 or even row, 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 but here's why actually there is a right to abortion that is in the Constitution. That's what we need to hear. So what you've expounded, um, not just now, but earlier in this discussion, was uh, sort of a, a democratic approach to precedent, that, that, that democracy has a role in in evaluating precedent. And what's interesting is that you've also said that if something is in the Constitution, we enforce it. We don't we don't put it to a vote. And Justice Jackson famously said that in a quote that that I'm fond of. In the um, Barnett case, which I actually identified as a landmark um, um, uh, of, the, of the 20th century, that very same case that overruled Gobitis said certain things, if they really are in the Bill of Rights, we just don't put them to a popular vote. And I agree with them. If they really clearly are in the Constitution, then there is a democratic um, uh, uh, check. That would be an amendment. Right. And that requires a, a pretty broad consensus, two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, three-quarters of the states. And then we could take it out. And we have taken stuff out of the Constitution. Um, um, a prohibition was uh, uh, agreed, uh, was met several years later with a, a 21st Amendment repealing the Prohibition Amendment. We, we did add emphatic words to the Constitution, for example, to, to get rid of the, uh, an effect of the three-fifths clause um, when we got rid of slavery. So you can, you can amend the Constitution democratically. But the point I'm making here is that this is um, – if you your point about the great and powerful Oz, if you equate the court, what the court has to say with the Constitution, then you would be offended by this uh, democratic approach. But if you say that, no, the Constitution is the supreme law and the court is one of the instruments, but not the only one that ultimately comes down to the people then you're not offended by this, uh, this democratic approach. But we're, now we're already beginning to see that it's just too quick to say, oh, who cares what the people think? It's only what we justices have said. That, that, that's not, and, but that's the kind of, I would say, um, unpersuasive thing that you're more likely to say if you push yourself hard in the present worshiper camp. And by the way, I'm going to say one other thing. Justice Sotomayor, you're going to rue the day. And, and I say the same thing to, to Justice Kagan, that you just painted yourself into this precedent corner because when you lose this case, as I think you will, and when you lose the next case on abortion, as I think you will, wherever that next case is, oh, then precedent is going to be against you. And people on the other side are going to be able to say, well, you know, six justices said this and it was a majority opinion and, 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 and precedent, precedent, precedent. Um, whereas if you had spent your time actually explaining where you think this right comes from in the Constitution, and you had a good argument for that, you can keep saying that again and again and again, um, uh, regardless of how many times you lose, in the same way that John Marshall Harlan um, in Plessy versus Ferguson, if he's fundamentally rooting himself, planting himself on the text of the Constitution, could continue to dissent on that issue if he so chose. Or the great Hugo Black, whom we've talked about before, if you're a fundamentalist, um, even if the precedents are against you and you lose in case one and you lose in case two, you can still say, look, the Constitution still says what it says. This is still a good argument, and we should overrule all the precedents, all of the, the Plessy precedents, all of the Dred Scott precedents, uh, or what have you. So kind of the ultimate um, 
argument about this, the ultimate uh, position held by the president worshipers, um, was teased out of uh, the advocates uh, for Roe, uh, in this case, Rickleman, uh, Attorney Rickleman and, and General Prologger, um, the notion that precedent can't be overruled uh, just because it's wrong. So here's, here's Ms. Rickleman on that. Because of the view that a previous precedent is wrong, Your Honor, has never been enough for this court to overrule, and it certainly shouldn't be enough here when there's 50 years of precedent. Instead, the court has required something else, a special justification, and the state doesn't come forward with any special justification. It makes the same exact arguments the court already considered and rejected in its stare decisis analysis in Casey, and in fact, there is nothing different. There is no less need today than 30 years ago or 50 years ago for women to be able to make this fundamental decision for themselves about their bodies, lives, and health. Uh, and so that's one. And that's so. That's uh, Attorney uh, Rickleman and uh, General Prologer, the Solicitor uh, General of the United States, in response to. Uh, and, and this is in a colloquy with uh, Justice Alito, which we're also going to play for you because his response is interesting. And I did notice, Akil, that in her comments here, she uses the formulation, it's almost a meme, if precedent means anything, uh, and so on, which we referred to in the previous podcast. Um, but she says, Can a decision be overruled simply because it was erroneously wrong, even if nothing has changed between the time of that decision and the time when the court is called upon to consider whether it should be overruled. Yes or no? Can you give me a yes or no answer on that? This court, no, has never overruled in that situation just based on a conclusion that the decision was wrong. It has always applied the stare decisis factors and likewise found that they weren't overruling in that instance. And, and Casey did that. It applied the stare decisis factors. If stare decisis is to mean anything, it has to mean that that kind of extensive consideration of all of the same arguments for whether to retain or discard a precedent itself is an additional layer of precedent that needs to be relied on and can form a, a stable foundation of the rule of law. I call bullshit. That um, I call bullshit on, in several ways. So both of them expressly said the court has never overruled a constitutional case just because it's wrong. Bullshit, 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 bullshit. Did I say it seven times? Maybe only said it six. There are at least seven times, damn it, in the 20th century alone. Um, that they did that, including West Virginia versus Barnett, which you talked about before, and Erie versus Tompkins. If I'm wrong on that, tell me why I'm wrong. Show me that they actually relied on something else. I've been on record as saying that for the last 20 years, the first time in a landmark article in the Harvard Law Review. Um, uh, and then in my 2012 book, in um, a chapter called Precedence Proper Place. Um, uh, uh, and the landmark article has been cited by the Supreme Court. Um, I, I repeated it in another piece that's also been cited by the Supreme Court. So if I'm wrong on the merits, call me on it. But I say at least seven times, I'm not even counting, actually, um, which others have, have, have suggested might be an eighth, the legal tender cases um, uh, in the late 19th century. But I say seven, at least seven times, at least, maybe more, in the 20th century, there have been naked overrulings by which I mean simply that the wrongness of the previous case was enough to overrule it, constitutional cases. So um, that's point one. Um, point two, I said that 
Casey says otherwise in what we talked about in the last episode, the Casey dictum, but the Casey was unprecedented in saying that. I said they said it again uh, in an opinion by Justice Kagan more recently, a majority opinion. It had uh, uh, more than five votes actually for um, Cooper versus Allen. But again, it's inconsistent with um, what the court has actually done. So that's one thing. You heard another formulation that there has to be, you know, um, the case has to be wronger today than it was before, um, that there has to be some new factor um, uh, above and beyond what the previous court um, had identified. And you remember, I said, that's one of the formulations of the, the present worshippers. So uh, audience members, I was absolutely prophetic in telling you what the argument was going to be about present, the, 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 the specific tropes and, and, and memes and formulations, but it's not true. Um, and um, uh, the National Review Online, shortly after the oral argument, actually posted a, a couple of pieces uh, with my name, maybe even in the title, saying, Amar, show that these things aren't tr- true long ago um, in, 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 in his scholarship. So this is bad when the Solicitor General of the United States gets up there and says flatly false things about the history of the United States Supreme Court and its, its precedent practices. So this is bad. And this is, oh, if I'm wrong, I've just really dug myself a very, very, very big hole, you see, but I'm doubling down on this. This is something I've said over and over and over again over the last 20 years. And, oh, I'd have to be wrong seven times. Um, uh, um, and, and audience members, you can read these um, overruling decisions for yourself, and you'll see Airy versus Tompkins simply says, we're overruling a case called uh, 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 Swift versus Tyson, which was more than 50 years old, simply because it's wrong. It was about 100 years old, um, simply because it's wrong. The unconstitutionality of the course pursued, I believe is the language um, of Erie, compels um, our result. And, and, and read West Virginia versus Barnett, which is a landmark civil liberties opinion overruling Gabitis simply because it's wrong. And yes, Justice Sotomayor, there were new justices in between. Um, um, and, and, and there was popular pushback against Gabitis, but it wasn't stenchy because the court got it right the second time and corrected the mistake the first time. And if you think Roe was not a mistake, and there, you, you don't need to hide behind stare decisis. You can just say, here's why Roe got it right on the merits, why Casey got it right. Here's actually the underlying constitutional argument. And if you make that argument, you can keep making it even after you lose in this case, which I predict you will. But if you only make an argument from precedent, then when you lose, the precedent's now on the other side. Justice Alito uh, kind of jumped down her throat when she, uh, when the Solicitor General made this argument. Um, he replied, uh, and here's Justice Alito. Is it your argument that a case can never be overruled simply because it was egregiously wrong? I think that at the very least, the state would have to come forward with some kind of materially changed circumstance or some kind of materially new argument, and Mississippi hasn't done so in this case. Really? So suppose Plessy versus Ferguson was re-argued in 1897, so nothing had changed. Would it not be sufficient to say that was an egregiously wrong decision on the day it was handed down, and now it should be overruled? It certainly was egregiously wrong on the day that it was handed down, Plessy, but what the court said in 
analyzing Plessy to Brown and Casey was that what had become clear is that the factual premise that underlay the decision, this idea that segregation didn't create a badge of inferiority, had been entirely mistaken. So is it it your answer that we needed all the experience from 1896 to 1954 to realize that Plessy was, was wrongly decided? Which answer my question, had it come before the court in 1897, should it have been overruled or not? I think it should have been overruled, but I think that the factual premise was wrong in the moment it was decided, and the court realized that and clarified that when it overruled. So there are circumstances in which a decision may be overruled, properly overruled, when it must be overruled, simply because it was egregiously wrong at the moment it was decided. Sam Alito is very good at oral argument. He's a he's a very clever fellow. He's he's a friend of mine. I, with all due respect, I do disagree with him on major areas of of jurisprudence. He uh, doesn't believe in a right of same sex marriage. I do, but I'll defend it on the merits as well as um, on the basis of, of, of precedent. I'll tell you where I think it comes from in the Constitution itself, and that was an issue that actually got asked, I think, also. Um, gee, if we're going to um, uh, talk about um, Roe, um, what about um, Obergefell? What about Lawrence versus Texas? What, what about um, um, some of those cases? Um, so I don't always agree with my friend Sam Alito, and, and he's my friend as is Steve Breyer, for whom I clerked, as is Sonia Sotomayor, whom I absolutely adore. My kids worship her. Um, she actually gave them a little autographed uh, uh, picture when, when they were young, and it really inspired them. So, so I love her, but I don't like this stench thing at all. I don't think, it, um, and I do like Sam Alito's point. It's very crisp, and it, uh, I, I would say touche. Well, well played. So, last time when we talked about this, um, you know, you had a variety of of responses to the um, precedent worshiper theory of precedent. Um, and one of them uh, involved questions of uh, reliance interests. And this came up uh, here, um, and it came up right at this point in the argument. Um, so uh, when uh, Justice Alito challenged the Solicitor General on this basis, um, she attempted to re- retreat into a reliance interest uh, argument. Um, and so what she said was, well, I think every correct. other stare decisis factor, likewise, would have justified overruling in that interest, that actually it would run counter to any notion of reasonable reliance, that it was not a workable rule, that it had become an, an outlier in our understanding of fundamental freedoms. Well, there was, so a, lot of reliance of on, there was a lot of reliance on Plessy. The, the South built up a whole society based on the idea of white supremacy. So there was a lot of reliance. It was it was improper reliance. It was reliance on an egregiously wrong understanding of what equal protection means. Good for you, Sam Alito. And listen, it's possible I'm totally hallucinating here. Um, but maybe one of Justice Alito's law clerks heard our last episode because it's very, very similar to what I actually said um, about Plessy and the reliance interests. Um, and and you're going to have to explain why white people relying on white supremacy post-Plessy, um, why some, um, that was rightly ignored by Brown, and it was, but somehow the reliance interest now in, in Roe is completely 
different. I said, that's the obvious hard argument. They're, they're going to need to explain why the reliance interest here is different than in Roe versus Wade, because as I said, oh, a lot of white supremacists relied on um, Jim Crow and, and Plessy versus Ferguson for their sense of self-worth and, and their, their vision of their roles in society. And the, of course, Brown says, but that's not reasonable reliance because actually um, uh, um, Plessy was fundamentally a, 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 a perverse and perverted um, a warping of um, what the Constitution really says, and, and you're not entitled to rely on, the, on, on that perverse warp, and you're no worse off um, um, than you would have been um, had the court rejected Jim Crow back in 1896. You've actually just had more years of, of, of unjustified white supremacy, but, but how are you worse off than if the court had stopped all this Jim Crow nonsense back in the 1890s? And the Solicitor General actually, I think she, she missed it a little bit here because she, she dug herself a little deeper. Here's what she said in, after Justice, Kagan, uh, Justice Alito said, uh, made his argument. Uh, she talked about individual reliance, and then she said... And then I think there's a, a second dimension to it that Casey also properly recognized, and that's the societal dimension. That's the, the understanding of our society, even though this has been a controversial decision, that this is a liberty interest of women. It's the case that not everyone agrees with Roe versus Wade, but just about every person in America knows what this court held. They know how the court has defined this concept of liberty for women and what control they will have in the situation of an unplanned pregnancy. And for the court to reverse course now, I think, would uh, run counter to that societal reliance and the very concept we have of what equality is guaranteed to women in this country. And everyone knew what Plessy versus Ferguson said. Um, and everyone knew, actually, about the freedom of contract um, and 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 uh, property rights vision of the court in the Lochner era. And yet, Brown walked away from Plessy, and rightly so. And the court in the 1930s, actually, um, uh, in the mid 1930s, 37, 38, repudiated Lochner. Um, so this is the problem, truthfully, of having litigators who aren't constitutional scholars, the way Neil Katyal, say, is a great constitutional scholar, um, and who are just focused on Casey. She's read Casey 10 times. The problem is Casey itself is problematic. Um, as you would understand better, if you knew the history of Abe Lincoln pushing back against Dred Scott in, in the 1850s and 1860s, um, or the Warren Court pushing back against Plessy versus Ferguson in Brown versus Board of Education, um, or the New Deal court pushing back against um, the, the property worshipers um, um, on the court in the pre prior Lochner era. Um, so those are three episodes, and they're not stenchy, um, Justice um, Sotomayor. They rank among the greatest episodes in the history of the court, and Gobitis you know, would be another one, which the court corrected its previous mistake to repeat um, uh, the repudiation of Dred Scott by the Lincoln administration and later uh, statutes and constitutional amendment, um, the repudiation of um, uh, the uh, Lochner era in, uh, by the New Deal Court in 1937-38 and following, the repudiation of Gobitis, um, in Barnett, Gobitis is 1941, Barnett is 1943, um, uh, and 
um, uh, the repudiation of Plessy versus Ferguson um, in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, which, by the way, takes us, I think, there was one justice who, who began, I think, to talk about n- not just Plessy, but that broader Warren Court tradition of repudiation, which was one of the things that we really highlighted in our last um, a podcast episode. Um, and uh, Andy, um, why don't you tell us about that one? Right. So I was just, uh, you could ask the questions and the answers here. But I was just about to get to it. It's, it's to- almost as if we prepared just a little bit beforehand. <laughs> just, just a little bit. Yes. So, um, yeah, so this was Justice Kavanaugh, who um, w- had a, uh, a little soliloquy uh, on this, which I think uh, you know, we should play for you right now. And uh, I want to ask a question about stare decisis uh, and to think uh, about how to approach that here, because there have been lots of questions picking up on Justice Barrett's questions and others. Um, And history helps think about stare decisis as I've looked at it and uh, the history of how the courts applied stare decisis. And when you really dig into it, um, history tells a somewhat different story, I think, than is sometimes assumed think about some of the most important cases, the most consequential cases in this court's history. There's a string of them where the cases overruled precedent. Brown v. Board uh, outlawed separate but equal. Uh, Baker v. Carr, which set the stage for one person, one vote. West Coast Hotel, which recognized the state's authority to regulate business. Miranda versus Arizona, which required police to give warnings when the right to rem- about the right to remain silent and to have an attorney present to suspects in criminal custody. Lawrence v. Texas, which said that the state may not prohibit same-sex conduct. Knapp versus Ohio, which held that the exclusionary rule applies to state criminal prosecutions to exclude evidence obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Gideon versus Rain- Wainwright, which guaranteed the right to counsel in criminal cases. Obergefell, which recognized the constitutional right to same-sex marriage. In each of those cases, and that's uh, a list, and I could go on, and those are some of the most consequential and important in the court's history, the court overruled uh, precedent. And um, it turns out uh, if the court in those cases had had listened and they were presented in our, with arguments in those cases adhere to precedent in Brown v. Board, adhere to Plessy, on uh, West Coast Hotel, adhere to Atkins and adhere to Lochner. And if the court had done that in those cases, uh, you know, this, the country would be a much different place. So I assume you agree with most, if not all, the cases I listed there where the court overruled precedent. So the question uh, on stare decisis is why if, and I know you disagree with what I'm about to say in the if, if we think that uh, the prior precedents are seriously wrong, if that, why then doesn't the history of this court's practice with respect to those cases tell us that the right answer is actually to return to the position of neutrality and, uh, and um, not stick with those precedents in the same way that all those other cases didn't. So um, I find myself almost entirely in agreement with uh, what Justice Kavanaugh said and what he asked. He began by saying, let's dig deeper. 
good because we've just heard that the um, uh, that the advocates um, uh, uh, opposing the Mississippi law, including the Solicitor General of the United States, had not dug deeply at all. They both said flatly false things. I called bullshit seven times. You see, um, they said flatly false things about. Um, the court's actual practice of overruling. He's saying, let's dig deeper. Good for him. He actually is um, uh, giving you examples in three different buckets, every one of which actually connects to things that I either said in the last episode or things that I said actually about Justice Kavanaugh when he was nominated to the court. The three buckets are, one, one was a case uh, called West Coast Hotel. It's from 1937, and it's when the court began to basically overrule the Lochner um, liberty cases. Remember, um, you, you, you talked in the last podcast, they're going to say, oh, you can't ever cut back on a right. And I'm saying, what are you talking about? The most famous pivot in maybe all of Supreme Court history is cutting back on perceived rights of, of liberty and property, uh, liberty of, of contract and, 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 um, and uh, uh, property rights, in, uh, in, which are individual rights, you see, um, uh, in the mid-1930s. So very famous pivot away from an overly expansive understanding of a certain kind of right, um, contract and property. And West Coast Hotel was famously one of the first cases um, in that um, New Deal revolution. And and we talked about that earlier today. We talked about the last episode. So that was one. A whole second cluster were all from the Warren Court. And that's Brown versus Board of Education and Gideon versus Wainwright and Mapp um, versus Ohio and Miranda versus Arizona. Um, and he also mentioned uh, the one person, one vote cases of Baker versus Carr and Reynolds versus Sims. So that's the Warren Court. And you remember, that was my argument, the meta precedent argument, that the Warren Court repudiated lots of precedents. And he gets it. He understands that. Reputed in the name of constitutional first principles, getting it right. What was the third bucket? more recent cases of Lawrence versus Texas and Obergefell. Those are about gay rights. Now, I didn't talk about those in as great detail in our past episode, but the reason that I, but here's what you need to understand. Those are both opinions written by Anthony Kennedy, for whom Kavanaugh clerked. And we talked about this in a podcast episode about all the justices. And I talked about how Kavanaugh, I think, was very influenced by Kennedy. Kennedy chose to step down Justice Breyer when it was a politically propitious moment. You're allowed to do that. Souter did it. Kennedy did it. I think Kennedy stepped down thinking that it would probably be his law clerk, Kavanaugh, who would replace him. And, and you don't have to do that, but it's permissible. You don't have to dig in your heels just to show your principle, Justice Breyer. Um, you, you know, sometimes you, you can go with the, uh, the political flow. Um, so um, why did I support Kavanaugh when he was nominated. This was before the um, Christine Blasey Ford incident, and I took no position on the facts of that case because I didn't have any knowledge of, of what transpired long ago. I supported him because he was a Kennedy clerk, and I thought he would be particularly open to um, protecting and extending Kennedy's legacy, especially in the domain of, say, of, of gay rights, which are very important to me. I thought he would be really good 
on Lawrence and Obergefell, which that question suggests he is. Um, and I wasn't so sure about my Amy Coney Barrett on that because she's a Scalia clerk and Scalia famously and fiercely dissented in Lawrence versus Texas, which was about um, uh, criminal prohibition of, 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 of sodomy and Obergefell, which is about same sex marriage. And he was Scalia every bit as fierce in his dissent um, in that area as he has been, as he was in the abortion area in cases like Casey. So I was more worried about Amy Coney Barrett on um, same-sex marriage and gay rights. And, 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 base, and, and I thought, oh, if Kavanaugh is defeated, um, he's going to be um, by the Senate. He, uh, Trump will nominate Amy Coney Barrett. And she's, you know, um, not as, as good on that. They they both are very skeptical of Roe. Every single person on the Republican um, uh, uh, list would be skeptical of Roe because the Republicans have been running against Roe for many, many years. So, Justice Sotomayor, you're looking at the justices and counting among them, but they're two legacy parties. And one of them, which has won a lot of presidential elections, has targeted Roe year after year after year. And that's not a bug. That's a feature of our system. But to go back... Kavanaugh had three buckets, and they absolutely correspond um, uh, uh, to, uh, w- with things that all the faithful listeners to this podcast would recognize. 1937, um, the, the, the New Deal sh- pivot away from Lochner, the Warren Court Revolution, which was a, a revolution against precedent in the name of first principles, and he added two Anthony Kennedy opinions about gay rights, which is completely consistent with the image I had of Brett Kavanaugh that I shared with our audience way back in that episode when we talked about the, the, the current justices. And I think he asked the question in a completely respectful way, an honest way. He says, I know you're going to disagree with the if, but um, let's just take this part by part. If you can't persuade me that this really is in the Constitution, then why shouldn't we overrule it just as we've overruled other things in the past? Which is what the real precedent about precedent tells us when we dig deeper, which is the exact opposite of what the Solicitor General said um, and, uh, and the other lawyer um, who just kept saying, row, row, row. Yeah, and unfortunately, in response to that, we got... Um you know, Ms. Rickleman, who's a very gifted advocate, by the way, but we got her uh, saying that the you know, precedent has never been overruled simply because it was wrong. So that wasn't the, the greatest. But on the other hand, you know, so if, if you listen to this podcast and you come away from this discussion believing that the stare decisis arguments that are being made here are losers um, for, for Roe and for Casey, um, but you're still pro-choice, um, as actually both of us are uh, yes. on this podcast. <laughs> okay. Yeah, our, our audience needs to be reminded that my constitutional views are not always in lockstep, in sync with my political views, my personal preferences, my, my policy views. I will vote pro-choice um, all day long because um, even though I believe in the sanctity of innocent unborn human life, I think abortion raises many complicated issues for in many kinds of pregnancies, medical and and otherwise. And and I, in general, believe that women uh, should be given um, uh, uh, should be the the, the relevant decision makers, not voters, Uh, because it's I trust women in general um, to um, make morally sensitive decisions. Some, for example, um, 
uh, I was just reading a piece about um, a, someone who uh, uh, it was in the New York Times about Wendy Davis, who's a leading political figure in Texas. She ran, I think, for the governorship of Texas, and she admitted she'd had two abortions in her life. One was an ectopic pregnancy, which was life-threatening. The other was of, um, I think, again, a, a very much a wanted um, a, a baby who would not have, have survived. Um, uh, there was a, just um, an absolutely fatal congenital defect. Um, so, um, but the laws are very blunt instruments in dealing with all sorts of complex um, medical questions and, and, and family situation questions. Um, so, so I'm glad Andy, you're reminding our audience that personally I'm, Pro-choice, uh, um, but that's different from whether I think Roe versus Wade made a good constitutional argument because I don't think it did. In fact, it talked much more about doctors' rights to perform abortions, always referring to the doctor as he, than it did about women's rights. And um, uh, and you're inviting me to talk a little bit about alternative bases for these results. Remember, in our previous episode, I said. You, um, even if you're a fundamentalist like me, you you actually are looking to see if there's wisdom in previous cases, um, uh, just as there might be wisdom in what we the people um, are saying, or um, what states are doing, or what the Constitution's text really um, uh, does say and, and doesn't say. Uh, so I think there's um, uh, on the facts of um, Roe. It, um, I think Roe was rightly decided because it was a law that regulated women that no woman had voted for. It was a law from the 1850s. And, but the court doesn't talk about women's equality in Roe because the precedence in 1973 um, did not exist on women's equality. Women's equality is properly dis- rediscovered by the court um, beginning in 1975, 76, cases like Reed versus Reed, Frontier versus Richardson, and the like. Um, and they themselves were breaking with earlier precedents, but rightly so, because the Constitution really is about women's equality. Um, um, it doesn't just, it's not just about, the 14th Amendment isn't just about race. It's about birth equality more generally. We're all born citizens. If we're born in the, um, uh, we're all born equal. We're all created equal. So the 14th Amendment plus the 19th Amendment, that's they're in the Constitution, and they're about uh, sex equality, just as the 14th Amendment is also about race equality, as is the 15th. That's my view. on. But, but Roe doesn't say that. Casey had a little bit about women's equality. Casey's 1992. So now there's some women's equality cases that are on the books, um, but not that many. And by the way, in Roe, there's, speaking of, of, of women, and, um, um, there no, there's no woman on the court in 1972-73 when Roe was argued and decided. Um, women start to come on the court. They start to talk about women's equality. Senator Day O'Connor um, uh, in um, the um, uh, Casey decision, um, uh, for example. Um, but it's not a big, big theme of Casey. It, it's kind of muted. And one of the reasons why is even as late as 1992, there's not a full-throated, robust women's equality jurisprudence of a sort that they will be only four years later when RBG is out on the court and writes a very famous opinion involving the Virginia Military Institute, the VMI case, in which she basically gets the court to recognize that sex um, discrimination is almost as constitutionally problematic 
as a general proposition as race discrimination. Why almost? Because there are areas where we do um, treat sexes differently. For example, we can't have racially segregated bathrooms in public buildings, but we do have sex segregated bathrooms in most public buildings. We do have sex segregation in high school sports teams or in um, high school um, locker uh, uh, rooms for uh, uh, physical education classes or communal showers in, in, in high schools across the land. Um, we, we have separate girls softball from boys hardball teams or girls gymnastics from boys gymnastics. Um, one has an even parallel bars, one has an uneven parallel bars. Um, we tell ourselves when it comes to sex, separate really sometimes can be equal, but race, for race discrimination, um, um, separate is almost never equal. But VMI, which is a 1996 case, wasn't on the books when Casey was, it wasn't a precedent, so to speak, when Casey was decided in 1992. So Casey emphasizes women's equality a little bit, Roe, not at all. You could think those cases are generally rightly decided, but not quite for the reasons that they said privacy. And you heard my, the audience uh, has, has heard in my previous episodes, why well, I don't think privacy is the right way to think about um, abortion because it doesn't take place in the home. It involves a commercial transaction among strangers who may have never met, may never meet again, the um, uh, doctor and, and, and the patient. It also involves a, another entity um, the, the, the fetus. Um, and if you don't see that again with a clump of microscopic cells at, at uh, um, uh, one week post conception or something, think about a um, 34 weeks post conception, a perfectly um, viable baby who could be delivered by induced labor uh, on the spot. Um, uh, that, that privacy isn't the right way to think about obliterating its existence. Um, because um, it, there's not just the woman, um, but the, 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 the infant, the unborn infant. So um, equality is a different way of thinking about these things. Um, and I wish that the oral advocates had spent more time maybe trying to make the equality argument on the merits. It's not a slam dunk at all, in part because um, there's nothing exactly equivalent to male pregnancy. And the argument is, yes, this treats pregnant women sort of um, uh, differently and disadvantageously in some ways. It, it forces them to do things. But we do that because life is um, um, a, a pearl beyond price. It, it's sacred, and we do this to save human life. So, you know, if you were you know, an advocate and you were thinking about defending, um, you know, your uh, approach or position, you might say, well, Okay, here's this case, stare decisis. Okay, and if not stare decisis, then uh, then um, you know Roe and, and Casey are right. Okay, or if Roe and Casey are not right, then they, they got to the right result. Roe and Casey are right in reasoning and result. Right, right. and yeah. if they're mm-hmm. um, or they're they're right in result but wrong in reason, and here's the reason. And yes, so. You know, and, when and, you read and Justice it, Thomas gave them a chance to right. to to um, make that argument. As is just that's why I like the way he asked the question. He, you know, he 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 kept trying to give them you know um, a chance to make their argument. And actually, maybe we could hear their voices on right. this. So here I'm going to play for you, Justice Thomas, uh, asking the question, and uh, Attorney Rickleman uh, giving her answer. If I were, I know your interest here is in abortion. I understand that. But if I were to ask you what constitutional right protects the right to abortion, 
Um, is it privacy? Is it autonomy? What would it be? It's liberty, Your Honor. It's the uh, textual protection in the 14th Amendment that a state can't deprive a person of liberty without due process of law. And the court has interpreted liberty to include the right to make family decisions and the right to physical autonomy, including the right to end a previability pregnancy. So it's all of the above. Well, the, that's how the court has interpreted the liberty clause for over 100 years in cases going back to Meyer, Griswold, Carey, Loving, Lawrence. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, all of those sort of just come out of Lochner. Uh, the, so it's the, we, we've dropped part of it. So I understand what you're saying. But what I'm trying to focus on is if we — is to lower the level of generality or at least be a little bit more specific. In the old days, we used to say it was a right to privacy that the court found in the uh, due process, substantive due process clause, Okay. So, or in substantive due process. And I'm trying to get you to tell me what are we relying on now? Is it privacy? Is it autonomy? What is it? I think it continues to be liberty, and the right exists whatever level of generality the court applies. There was um, a tradition under the common law for centuries of women being able to end their pregnancies. But in addition, when it comes to decisions related to family, marriage, and childbearing, the court has done the analysis at a higher level of generality, and that makes sense because otherwise the Constitution would reinforce the historical discrimination against women. Okay, that last point is her only really good one. Uh, Before that, it's just a hot mess. She talks about the liberty clause of the Constitution. um, uh, Here's what I wrote um, in a book from 2012. And where is she getting this from? Because she's just reading Supreme Court opinions by people who are not constitutional scholars. And and she's not reading even the Constitution itself because there is no liberty clause as such. Um, Here's what I say. And... Um, And I know I've been hard on Justice Sotomayor. She's my friend and hard on Justice Breyer. He's my friend. Um, uh, um, I was hard on Elena Kagan um, in our last episode. Here I'm hard on John Paul Stevens, who, by the way, was the only justice nice enough to to interview me to be a Supreme Court clerk way back when. Um, um, But um, here's what I say. Uh, Justice John Paul Stevens was particularly fond of referring to, quote, the Liberty Clause, unquote, of the Constitution. Nice try, but not quite. Boy, that's snotty on the part of it, but but that's what I say. The clause speaks of life, liberty, and property as a trio. The clause is thus no more a liberty clause than a property clause. If governments under this clause may restrict property so long as they follow proper procedures, that is due process, then the same grammatically holds true for liberty. If Conversely, fair procedures do not suffice where liberty is restricted, the approach favored by Stevens, then the same would logically hold true for property. This could take us back to the bad old days of Dred Scott and Lochner, when the court in fact did use the clause outrageously to enslave various property holders, including slaveholders and sweatshop owners, from perfectly reasonable government regulations endorsed by a broad swath of ordinary citizens. So liberty, no. Um, there's no liberty clause. It's a liberty that can be um, uh, taken away with due process of law, that is, with proper statutes. And there's a reason that it's being taken away here, namely to save human life. So, you know, do I have a liberty to drive my car at 90 miles an hour um, uh, in a school zone? No, my liberty is restricted 
um, by all sorts of laws to, that protect um, other people. Do I have a, a an absolute liberty interest to refuse to allow um, uh, um, uh, 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 myself to be vaccinated? No, there is no such absolute liberty right because there are interests on the other side. And so, too, the argument is so liberty doesn't do it quite because there really is a law here. Liberty is protected no more than property when you read the text of the Constitution. And um, liberty and property can both be restricted by proper laws. And here we have a law that passed um, in the legislature, was signed by the governors, enforced by judges and juries in in a proper procedural ways. Um, and so, um, and there's a reason for it. This is not these laws, these laws are not utterly arbitrary. They're designed to protect innocent, unborn human life. And the clause actually says life liberty and property in that order. So it might be a reason to restrict property, to restrict even liberty in order to protect life. So so that was not a good answer. At the very end, she mumbled something about women's equality. But boy, she was given just a huge, you know, nice big 85 mile an hour um, a pitch right down the plate. And, and she she whiffed. She does try to uh, recover, though, later. When uh, Justice Alito uh, asks her question, here's the colloquy there. What's your best case? For the right to end a pregnancy, Your Honor? Mm-hmm. Um, allowing a state to take control of a woman's body and force her to undergo the physical demands, risks, and life-altering consequences of pregnancy is a fundamental deprivation of her liberty. And once the court recognizes that that liberty interest deserves heightened protection, it does need to draw a workable line, and viability is a line that logically balances the interests at stake. The brief for the American Historical Association says that abortion was not legal before quickening in 26 out of 37 states at the time when the 14th Amendment was adopted. Is that correct? That is correct, because some of the states had started to discard the common law at that point because of a discriminatory view that a woman's proper role was as a wife and mother, a view that the Constitution now rejects, and that's why it's appropriate to do the historical analysis at a higher level of generality. Okay, again, I need to hear so much more about that, and she's wasting all her time on row, 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 and saying uh, false things about precedent, and still, her first um, uh, argument is always liberty. Liberty can be abridged by due process. Um, uh, lots of laws restrict um, a liberty in all sorts of ways. And she says, oh, but it ha- th- th- this court has to decide where to draw the line. That's not this court doesn't generally decide, you know, um, how fast you can go um, in uh, uh a, a, a school zone or on the throughway for that matter. Legislatures say here's 65, here's 55, here's 25. It's 25 when a yellow um, light is flashing um, during school hours or something like that. Ordinarily, legislatures get to decide how to restrict liberty in all sorts of ways, we uh, um, um, there's no liberty interest in infanticide. You see that a, that that a legislature must respect. Um, so um, uh, so she says, oh well, inf- uh, viability that's more like infanticide. But but why can't a legislature choose to say we actually think that the 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 the, the better um, place to draw the line is where there's fetal pain or a fetal heartbeat? You liberty can't quite decide those questions and there's no 
absolute right to liberty as such that generates a judicial balance. So, 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 so she, she first says press and press and press and waste all her time and then says liberty, liberty, liberty. And that's not where it's at. And then only at the end does she kind of sneak in a little bit about equality, which is a much better argument and the hard argument for equality. I find the equality argument much closer call. The, the strongest argument um, for the equality is this is regulating pregnant people. They are women and, um, and you're um, imposing unique burdens on them. The counter is twofold. One, or maybe three, um, equality doesn't quite tell us why we can restrict them, women's liberty, uh, equality after 23 weeks or 24 weeks of gestation, but not before. Where are you getting that from? Equality, point one. Point two, um, you're, is it, this isn't quite like the law in Plessy versus Ferguson, blacks over here, whites over there, or the law in VMI, no women need apply, because um, strictly speaking, there's not quite anything exactly analogous to pregnancy, because the argument is, we're not doing this to restrict women, we're doing this to save human life, and, and, and they're just biologically, men are different, so we don't quite have the, the, the counterpart um, uh, issue um, to tee up a pure equality analysis. So, um, so it's just a little complicated. But, and third, if it's fundamentally about women's equality, um, you have to take seriously the fact that there are a lot of pro-choice women, um, but there are also a lot of pro life women. And um, since everyone's allowed to vote today, um, and in fact, probably more women than men generally do vote year after year, why isn't a better way, or at least a, a proper way to pr protect women's equality, be to, given that there is this thing on the other side, uh, innocent unborn human life, um, maybe we, the court, should generally allow um, the political process to strike the right balance because because women really are um, equal voters and many of them happen to be um, pro life. Um, uh, that argument has particular poignancy, poetry salience now because we have a pro life woman on the court. We haven't talked about Amy Coney Barrett yet, but I think you know we we, we can't leave um, without talking a little bit about her um and and she's not merely pro-life but she's of course a pro-life woman she's of course a pro-life mother indeed she's a pro-life mother um having um carried pregnancies but also ha having adopted babies and and so if you're pro-choice as am i who um she's someone that we have to reckon with um and she has a different vision than does justice sotomayor or justice kagan um or before them um uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg, and of course, Justice uh, O'Connor, and I just named all the women who have ever served on the U.S. Supreme Court, which is, you know, sad that there have been so few. Um, so I wanted to hear more about women's equality, women's equality, women's equality. The, again, to repeat, the counter arguments are women's equality doesn't tell you where to draw the line as between, you know, five weeks or six weeks, Texas heartbeat, 15 weeks, fetal pain, Mississippi, 23 weeks, viability or anywhere else. Point two, 
Um, uh, women aren't, the argument is, aren't being discriminated here because the men aren't exactly similarly situated. This is just a unique biological situation. Um, um, but the purpose of this is actually to save innocent unborn human life, and men just aren't in the same position to do so. And third, if it really is about women's equality, but it's hard for us judges to, to do the analysis, why not actually listen to the political process in which women are equal participants, and many of them themselves happen to be pro-life? I just want to be clear for our audience once again that you're laying out the arguments. Yes. You're not necessarily making the arguments. I'm pro-choice. I vote, you know, uh, I think more women um, vote um, pro-choice than pro-life, but oh, the poll data on this are actually contested, um, and it sometimes matters how you ask the question. And um, but to repeat, yes, thank you, Andy. I personally um, do not feel very awkward passing laws telling other people how to make very difficult medical, moral, family decisions. So obviously, there's a lot more to say about the the oral argument. For example. Um, in terms of reading tea leaves, you know, getting to five and Justice Roberts, where is he? What about strategy? How do you, how do you, uh, who do you aim your argument at, depending on, uh, you know, which side you're on? All these things are interesting. Um, and I think uh, some of them may come up uh, as we have our upcoming podcasts, including uh, a special episode that I'm happy to, to tease now, where um, Ed Whalen, who's written, who writes for the National Review, and has uh, written on this uh, recently and over the years, um, has agreed to come on, and we're going to be uh, talking to him about a lot of these issues, including some of the things we haven't gotten to yet. So here's a couple of things that we haven't uh, touched on yet, which we don't have time to fully explore, but are very important. So let's just mention them. First of all, Chief Justice Roberts. Um, We know that he is an institutionalist, cares about the court, and some of his comments seem to buy into some of the uh, statements by Justice Breyer. First of all, he said that he he was very taken by them, you know, and, and so forth, um, which is you know possibly part of his ongoing, you know, courtship of, of Justice Breyer to stay. Please, on the court. Justice Breyer, stay on until my party controls the Senate. I mean, and, you know, as long as you like. Yes, <laughs> but also I think you know would be consistent with his his pattern uh, recently and. It, you know, to read it, it sounded like he was looking to find a way to say, uh, so sort of this far and no further, to say, yes, um, you can have your 15 weeks, but that's it. Um, and one way of thinking about that is, remember, we've talked about how precedent is not just what a court um, does says, but what it does. And so he says, yeah, we said some stuff um, in Roe about trimesters, and we said in Casey that's the central holding of Roe, but maybe we could just recharacterize those decisions and say that's not the central holding of Roe. The central holding of Roe is there's um, uh, a woman as a right to make an informed choice about whether to carry a pregnancy or not. That's what Roe was really centrally about, women needing time to make a choice. And that's what Casey really was all about, women needing time to make a choice. Yes, they said some other things, but but that's the, 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 the real core we now think um, is um, there is a, um, a, a, a central um, right, um, but 
we don't have to stick with the, the uh, viability line. Um, there just needs to be enough time to make a decision. Viability is actually all about the fetus, and, and these, this was all about women's um, rights. So 15 weeks might be enough, and we don't need to then um, overrule these cases. We just need to recast them. And remember, we talked about how a certain kind of precedent person might be very open to, to um, preserving certain parts of a precedent, um, uh, the, 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 what the court actually did on the facts, even as uh, the justice um, deviates from what the court may have said. And actually, so that's completely consistent with our framework. And actually, you can sort of see uh, just Chief Justice Roberts getting somewhat irritated with Mississippi for making his job harder because um, you know they requested certiorari on a particular question and then they do a little bait and switch. So here's Chief Justice Roberts asking a question on this. You know, in your petition for cert, your first question and the only one on which we granted review was uh, whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. And then I think it's fair to say that when you got to the brief on the merits, you kind of shifted gears um, uh, and talked a lot more about whether or not Roe and Casey should be uh, overruled. And I wanted to give you a chance to explain that. Uh, you know, one thing which I, I'd like to take up in a future episode on this is, so if he gets buy-in on this, who signs that opinion? Is it the liberal justices or is it the conservative justices? Who signs that opinion with him? Um, so that to me is it because you're going to get Sonia Sotomayor to say to move off, you know, viability or to move off 24 weeks. Uh, how are you going to do that? Or are you going to get, you know, Sam Alito to say, uh, you know, this role was OK. You know, but- and remember in the Fulton case, which we talked about um, uh, uh, in previous episodes, he got the liberals to sign on to a pretty um, uh, religion protection, uh, strong religion protective uh, opinion because they were afraid of something even worse. Right, so that that could be that could be quite interesting to see how that how that aligns. And remember that in the Obamacare case, um, he um, wrote an opinion cutting back on uh, invalidating even some aspects of Obamacare, but upholding it in the main and and getting uh, liberal buy-in. So, and of course, we can't uh, talk about this this case without mentioning uh, Justice Barrett, even beyond what you've said so far, because she had some some prominent questions about. Um, issues and and Chief Justice Roberts uh, bought into this as well. I think um, in terms of sort of two lines of women's autonomy, the the two arguments: one um, having to do with being forced to be pregnant, and another with being forced to be a parent. Right. So compelled pregnancy—that's the bodily liberty interest that we've been talking about. But then there was a second argument. Well, if you force the woman to go through the pregnancy, then the birth happens and then the woman can't give up the baby. Um, and so you're forcing basically the woman to be a, a parent for the rest of her life. Um, and at least for 18 years, while she has to um, be a guardian of, of, of the baby, she's been forced to, to deliver. Um, and Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett said, as to the second interest, Actually, people um, uh, can uh, uh, give their babies up for adoption, and it's it's actually easy in all the states. And maybe that wasn't true when Roe was decided or Casey's decided, but it is true today. 
and she knows what she's talking about when it comes to adoption because she herself is um, and pregnancy, but but adoption in particular because she herself has actually adopted. Uh, she and her spouse um, have adopted children. So so that was a very interesting um, uh, part of the um, oral argument as well. And, and of course, we talked a lot about Justice Kagan. Um, in our previous episode and on her vision of precedent, she didn't speak up, I think, as much as, as some of the others we've talked about. But but she defined, of course, the agenda in earlier cases because these were all of her means. If precedent means anything, it has to be longer than the day it was decided. It has to be this special um, justification, um, you know, um, um, uh, and again, Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor added a fourth, uh, a mere change of personnel could never, um, uh, should never be the basis because that would be stenchy. And just before we leave uh, Justice Barrett, um, again, making clear that you're putting forth her arguments because, yes. you know, it, first of all, it's, it's, it's some fairly obvious uh, qualifications here. So, for example, being an adoptive a mother, in other words, you know, adopting someone else's child hardly means that you understand what it means to give up a child. Those are very different uh, behaviors. Um, and, uh, you know, the notion that it's easy to give up the child, I think, you know, what you meant is that the legal framework is there. And she herself has, has had children of her own womb, so, she, so she, 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 can, she can speak to that. We hear a lot when we talk about Supreme Court, um, people on the court, about their own lived experience and, and, and what they, they, they bring um, um, just as, as human beings. Um, she's the only mother currently on the court. Um, that's not true of Justice Sotomayor or Justice Kagan. It was true of her predecessors, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sandra Day O'Connor. And I think if we were to have, um, uh, let's say, a woman a journalist that we know of, uh, Linda Greenhouse, on, she would, you know, take strong exception to some of uh, Justice Barrett's comments, you know, in this respect. But um, so I think that it's it's important to understand the argument she was making without necessarily yes. endorsing it. Let's let's see if we can get her on the podcast. We should reach out. Sounds good. Okay, audience. Well, this was uh, a lengthy podcast, but I think you'll agree that the uh, material warranted it, um, to use a legal term. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, lots more on this over the, in the months to come, of course. And um, I'm very excited that we'll be having um, the journalist Ed Whalen on to uh, give a, you know, a, a strong point of view on one side of the issue, and we hope to have um, someone on the other side as well. So thank you very much, Akil, and uh, looking forward to continuing our discussions. Happy Hanukkah. <laughs>